Hello and welcome to Youth Futures Foundation's Tackling Youth Unemployment Podcast. I'm Rena, and I'm going to be your host for this season. To kick things off in season two, in this episode, we'll be getting to know Youth Futures Foundation a bit more. We'll be asking, what is our mission? How did we start out? And also, how have we developed over the past few years? Navigating huge external factors like the pandemic, but also growing thanks to our project collaborations and much more. To help me reflect on some of these thoughts, I'm really excited to be joined by some excellent guests who will be able to provide much more deeper insights into Youth Future's uh, journey so far and help you, our listeners, get to know the youth employment landscape a bit more. So hi all, thank you for joining me today. Would you mind introducing yourselves to our listeners and maybe just telling us a bit about your role. Good afternoon all, uh, delighted to, to be invited uh, to today's podcast. Uh, my name's George Grease and I'm a YFF uh, Young uh, Board member and have been since April this year. Um, a bit about myself is I've worked in the uh, employment apprenticeship landscape since actually leaving school myself, so since the age of 16. I've also been through the apprenticeship system uh, myself up to management uh, apprenticeships. And then also I had a challenge, uh, a number of challenges uh, post prior to 16, uh, for example, being expelled from school and leaving school with no GCSE. So for someone that's built a career in education and employment, however, didn't have the, the best start necessary in that. I'm really keen to and passionate about sharing my journey, but also the, the work I do on supporting young people from marginalized backgrounds uh, into employment. Uh, which is, as, as as you all will be listening today, will be uh, very relevant with the work that Youth Futures Foundation are doing. Hi everyone, um, my name is Matthew Poole. I'm Director of Grants and Investments at the Youth Futures Foundation. And I've been here since 2019, so pretty much from the start. Um, I am passionate about young people and um, the reasons why youth unemployment is such a stubborn problem that we should all be concerned about and collectively trying to address. So that's why I'm at Youth Futures and I oversee our grant making and investment portfolio. So um, looking after the 159 grants that we've made across England so far. Hi everyone, so I'm Angel Fletcher and I'm the Policy and Public Affairs Officer here at Youth Futures Foundation. Um, so a little bit about me and um, my, my passion for young people and for marginalisation comes from my own lived experience. Um, so I have um, parents who are unemployed. Um, I have myself been a free school meal student um, and I'm also mixed race, so really keen about the ethnic disparities work that youth teachers do and continue to advocate for. Um, in terms of my role at the organisation, um, I am in the policy team and I do a lot of internal policy monitoring for the organisation and keeping track of political developments, reports of interest, etc. And I also run the secretariat for the youth employment group and the ethnic disparities subgroup, which I'll talk about more later. Um, but it's basically a really cool coalition for youth employment experts to come together to discuss key issues and barriers facing young people's employment outcomes. Um, and as well as that, I also do a lot of ad hoc bits and bobs, like drafting consultation responses, event planning for policy events and briefings for speakers at the events we get invited to. So a real cool and um, broad scope of stuff there. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Great to have you on. So, Matthew, as you were saying now, you've been at Youth Future Foundation now since 2019. So that actually does make you a bit of a veteran. Um, since you've been here, probably one of the you know longest out of all of us here. Um, would you mind giving us a bit of a background introduction to Youth Futures Foundation and maybe a bit about our mission and vision? Yeah, absolutely. 
Although, Rena, I've got to take umbrage that you're making me sound really old by calling me a veteran <laughs> of Youth Futures. Anyway, so the Youth Futures Foundation is an independent, not-for-profit organisation, and we actually were officially set up in December 2019 when we had our endowment from the Reclaim Fund. Now, we currently have um, £110 million at our disposal, and we're using that money to try and improve the employment outcomes for young people for from marginalised backgrounds. So just a bit of context, I guess, in terms of understanding. The Reclaim Fund is the distributor of dormant assets money, um, and it was set up to make use of um, financial assets that were in banks, building societies and, and other schemes that wasn't being utilised. And today, about £890 million has been made available for good causes across the UK, and that includes Youth Futures. So that's a bit about where our money comes from. So our mission is to narrow that employment gap between young people from marginalised backgrounds, and we do that in a variety of different ways. So we have some strategic priorities, one of which is thinking about how we change the system within which young people move towards and into employment. The second is about creating opportunities with employers. And the third is about building the capacity of people that work with young people. So the practitioners that are there to support those young people that need the help the most. Brilliant. And you spoke there a little bit about our kind of strategic approach to um, addressing our mission. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about that, you know, our kind of our research and evidence and our grant making, maybe just kind of um, go into a bit more depth about that. Yeah, of course, Cam. So um, in terms of thinking about what we were set up to do and how we're doing it, um, we recognise that there is a stubbornly high number of young people that are not in education, employment or training or NEAT, as they're otherwise known. And it's a figure that's been stubbornly high for far too long. Um, and we also recognise that there are particular groups of young people, um, maybe they're from particular ethnic minority backgrounds, um, young carers, those people who have been excluded from school or with special educational needs that face additional barriers in terms of accessing work and employment. And sadly, um, in some recent research, which we commissioned with PwC, the UK was ranked 18th um, in the Global Index of Youth Unemployment. So we know that, the, the, that, that there's this problem and a problem that's remained for a long time for groups of young people, and we want to try and address that. Now, it could be that we could spend all of our money on just funding outcomes for young people. So we look at that figure of 700,000 and we run grant programmes and investments that try and support as many young people as possible to reduce youth unemployment. But actually, there's been quite a lot of investments and programmes that have been set up to do exactly that. And Youth Futures is here to try and do it differently. So we want to use evidence and learning of what works um, to generate new ideas, innovations and create a movement for change so that more young people now and in the future have a fairer chance of accessing good quality jobs. So by taking a slightly different approach of investing in understanding what works, what we hope is then that learning and that evidence can be used to affect the way that young people are supported now and in the future. So it has much wider ripple effects in terms of its impact. 
Thank you, Matthew. And um, before we move on to the next section, you mentioned briefly there about kind of our funding uh, streams and uh, you mentioned there about dormant assets. Now, the consultation on dormant assets has recently closed, as you'll know. Would you mind giving our listeners a bit more of a uh, background about how dormant assets are used and maybe how we, um, you know, how we kind of approached our use of dormant assets, you know, where is that kind of funding going and how is it supporting our work and our mission? Yeah, so dormant assets funding is a unique opportunity because it's outside of kind of government influence. UFutures is an independent organisation and it means that we're able to tackle some of the issues that we're facing in different ways and ways that haven't been done before. So dormant assets were released initially to a number of particular causes. And as you highlighted, most recently, there's been a consultation as to whether or not those causes should remain or if there should be new causes that are added. And um, so the consultation was um, adding within it um, youth um, and young people as a cause. So we we're excited that there is the possibility that we will receive additional funding in the future because we recognise actually in order to try and tackle um, the issue of youth unemployment, we need longer than just the initial period of funding that we've received. Thank you, Matthew. So, George, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that, you know, as a, a new member of our board. What are your thoughts on Youth Future's journey so far from what you've heard uh, from Matthew? Is it what you expected? Yeah, what are your reflections? Yeah, no, I think certainly uh, following on from, from what Matthew's covered and also just sort of my experience that since April uh, this year, it's sort of uh, overachieved what then I originally expected. And the, and the crucial uh, influential role that Youth Futures uh, plays, not just within sort of the, the practitioner's arena, but also within government and, and most importantly as well is employers. And I think that the key piece that I've really took away from sort of being a, a, a young board member is how key the youth voice is and is a forefront of the input. Um, and, and I think personally for me, that's sort of what I'm a real champion of and why I sort of work in this uh, sort of profession um, sort of in my career and have done. Um, it's just because I feel sometimes that that can be overlooked and I, I don't think there's nothing worse than actually the person that's receiving necessary if it's education, employment and stuff should have maybe be sitting around that table. Um, and I certainly feel that that, that happens at Youth Futures um, and, and I've had that sort of experience. I also would say the passion from the not just the, the staff, it's the, the grantees, the partners is it's all singing from the same hymn sheet, which I think is just very refreshing, being sort of a, an advocate for, for youth and real quality employment. Um, so I think that's something I've, I've really taken in from, from sort of my, my first few months. Um, and, then I, and then I would say, like the, as I mentioned, is the role within the landscape and really that collaboration piece, which I think is probably one of the hardest challenges I've probably realised in my short seven-year career working in this space. And I feel where Youth Futures can play that sort of neutral um, conducting and facilitated role um, has, has been really key. And that's across not just necessary employers, practitioners and government, and then bringing all, all together and having that uh, conversation as well. Thank you. So Matthew spoke a little bit there about some of the additional barriers that uh, some young people face, especially, you know, from uh, backgrounds where they might be facing adversity or especially uh, young people from ethnic minorities. 
What are your reflections on the challenges that some young people face from your own experience, your career so far? Um, I think a key one that really stands out uh, to me is the uh, access to professional and quality networks. I think that was probably one of my biggest barriers, particularly uh, when I was young, going through sort of secondary school, is because I didn't have family that come through sort of a corporate sort of background or, or done not necessarily a professional role, because I don't want to speak speak down on my family, but very much um, sort of your hands-on type roles. Um, no one sort of in my immediate or, or extended family worked it in an office. And I think that really restricted the access of that network growing up and that what comes from a network is understanding the opportunity and experience exposure. And I think that that was really sort of um, tunneled into necessary. I went into uh, a traineeship uh, where then I found out around employability and really started my, my sort of journey uh, in my professional career. So I'd say the access to professional networks is the key one because I experienced what access to the wrong networks can do to young people and particularly at like my, my sort of 14 to 16 teenagers, which is a crucial part. Um, I was necessarily having access to maybe not the, the best networks. And I, I think just because of the background and the situation I was, that was just all I knew. So as soon as I had managed to find my opportunity of going on to a traineeship, building my professional career, the whole networks that I opened up was I, I could have never dreamt of. And I know my family could never have put me in touch with the people that I've now engaged and created my network around. So I think actually that can become the biggest barriers because net, my my sort of mantra is network creates opportunity. Um, so I think when that's restricted because where you live or your background, um, that that can be such a big challenge uh, for young people because it's not saying they've not got the skills or the capability, but they might not never know about that opportunity because they've not got no one in the network that can let them know how they would find out about that or, or put that in front of them. Um, so I'd say that would be one of the, the key ones uh, that stand out for me. I think the the impact of uh, the pandemic, I think sort of if I look from when I started uh, sort of my traineeship, which would have been 2014, wow, it's flown by, <laughs> um, is the actual, the, the, the challenges that have now arisen from pandemic and actually the it's accelerated some of the barriers more further. So it's actually put more young people more at a disadvantage. And I think actually sectors and industries that are not the same from now after COVID, where young people will probably get their foot on the ladder, is probably the best way to, to put it, and get that exposure and that experience. Them opportunities are not that necessarily there anymore or not on the same basis. So, for example, I see a lot of young people that are working on necessary zero-hour contracts is much more common. Um, so I think the quality and exposure to the employment at that younger age, which then can lead into other careers, but it gives you that uh, professional sort of um, experience and just ex uh, just experience in general, not whether it's in banking, finance, it could be necessarily just hospitality, but you're just getting that sort of first job. I think that can be a barrier because even though a lot of employers that say offer sort of early talent initiatives, it's always good to see that you've done a bit of experience as well as been at college and, and so forth. But when those opportunities are not as frequent to come by, I think that can be a challenge on building that sort of that profile, that res resume that the, the employers are looking for. Um, and then I think the, the, education attainment um i think if i didn't go down the, the the route i did which was through traineeship doing my sort of english and maths outside of the school setting i think that can be a barrier because when i see a lot of necessary say apprenticeships that are level three and higher that is an eligibility requirement um so i think that can be a big barrier if you haven't managed uh, for whatever reasons achieved your maths and english at necessary school 
uh, that can be a, a key barrier for then entering the quality uh, quality employment. Just reflecting on what George was saying, I think that sometimes there's a bit of a misconception that youth unemployment happens because young people can't be bothered or that young people are just not passionate enough about working hard enough to get into work. And George highlights that actually it's a really complex issue and there are multiple reasons why young people face barriers in accessing work. There's, there's reasons why young people can get stuck in a system where there's lots of different organisations that are providing support, multiple government departments that have got responsibility, but not one which has an overarching accountability for youth unemployment and also funding in this space. Like there's, there's been lots of funders that have delivered programmes and activities for young people. And all of this leads to a system which is fragmented and disconnected. And it means that young people at certain points can get stuck in a system that's not working for them, but can feel like it's working against them. So when Youth Futures were set up, we really had this ambition of if we can understand what works and then get it out there and influence more good stuff to happen based on evidence, and if we can understand this system and its complexity and think about how do we make these journeys to work for young people smoother, then we will help to reduce that inequality of young people who face all of these barriers in accessing work and employment. And I think George just kind of really helpfully summarised, it's not just one issue that affects young people. There's multiple issues and multiple things that are working to try and support young people, but doesn't always ultimately help them. Thank you, Matthew. I think you neatly parceled up there some really important points about the system and the complexity of it. So thank you, George, uh, for um, giving us your reflections. That's really interesting. And I'll come back to you both in a second. But Angel, I'd love to bring you in here and I'd love to know your reflections, you know, as a member of staff at Youth Futures as well. What are your reflections on how Youth Futures has developed over the years, you know, hearing about it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I completely echo um, what George and Matthew have both said. I think as a member of staff in just three years, Youth Futures has gone, undergone an incredible transformation, really. We've gone from being a startup working out of other organisations' offices to now having over 50 staff members in hubs spread across Birmingham, Leeds and London. And I really appreciate the fact that we're not a London-centric organisation. We're very keen to make sure that we're regionally spread and that's super important. We've got a fantastic board. George is one of them. I mean, they're full of inspiring individuals. We've got an employer advisory board. So we're hearing from the employer perspective. We've got a grants and evaluation committee. We've got the Future Voices Group for our youth ambassadors. So many exciting and inspiring individuals that we're working with, and we're still continuing to grow. Um, recently, we actually became the 10th fully accredited What Work Centre in the UK, which is so exciting for us. And we're the first one to focus specifically on youth, youth employment. So lots and lots of stuff going on and we're hugely proud of the grants investments that we've made matthew mentioned earlier just how many organizations we've reached and we're continuing to expand and think about where we can do new place-based partnerships where we can support more frontline organizations and marginalized young people we're working really really closely with policymakers civil society to advocate for systems change the merit of place-based approaches and the importance of putting young people as a high priority on the policy agenda and it's just really exciting, to be honest, to work at an organisation that truly cares about young people and being put at the heart of everything that we do. And to see how, despite having achieved so much, we're still striving to push the envelope further and further. And so I think Matthew's point around dormant assets is a really important one. We're continuing to lobby for our own financial sustainability because 
there's so much more to be done to sort of narrow that youth employment gap and to change the system for young people to make sure it works for everyone. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and so you touched upon um, the idea of what works at Youth Future Foundation, and that's one of our key principles. Can you talk to us a little bit about the policy landscape right now and what are the key priority areas that you think should be focused on? Yeah, and I think it's worth saying as a caveat that even as I record this, we've literally just found out that the Kwasi Kwarteng was set down as Chancellor and is being replaced by Jeremy Hunt. Um, and so I think there is a, a widespread sort of worry across the sector about being ab- able to enact meaningful policy change as the government continues to change and is in this kind of period of turbulence. However, having said that, on a more optimistic note, it is our job at Youth Features and in the youth employment sector to cut through the noise and identify the key priority areas in policy to make it easier for civil servants and politicians to to get on with their jobs and to enact meaningful policy change. And I think that, um, yeah, it, it goes without saying that the youth employment policy landscape is vast and it's complex. We've got a cost of living crisis, we've got the threat of recession and keeping up the call to prioritise young people on the policy agenda is really challenging amidst all those things going on. We've got the war in Ukraine. Having said that, though, it's never been more important to continue to lobby for young people and to put them on the agenda. We're seeing a lot of government rhetoric around low unemployment rates. And normally this would be something to be celebrated, but it's only part of the picture and it's masking some really serious issues. And one of those serious issues is economic inactivity, which basically means the amount of people who are unemployed and not looking for work. And this is rising with more people exiting the labour market. And and worryingly, the Office for National Statistics' latest stats showed that a record number of labour market exits have been happening recently due to ill health. And there's a really worrying number of young people who are economically inactive. And as Matthew said, we have a suddenly high number of young people who are neat, not in education, employment or training. And this has remained high for decades. And I think another point that's really worth flagging is that we've got a participation crisis at the moment. The labour market is really tight which means basically that we've got demand outstripping supply and we've seen record number of job vacancies this year and employers are struggling to fill them. And the problem is is that young people aren't necessarily equipped with the skills they need to take up these opportunities. Um, We've been having conversations recently about just how many opportunities are actually truly entry level, not many. Um, So it's really, really hard for young people to kind of break break through that that barrier, like getting their first first step on the the career ladder. and I think as well, just to kind of flag the the fragmentation point that Matthew and George have alluded to is really important. Employability services are patchy, they're disjointed, and young people don't know where they need to go to get job support. And, and if you couple that with the impact of the pandemic and the mental health emergency that we're seeing, um, it's, it's really scary. It's a really scary time to be a young person trying to navigate their employment, education and, and training journey. And we know from from previous evidence and and from hearing from young people themselves that they're disproportionately represented in zero hours contracts, insecure work, and they're not feeling like they're able to find good jobs where they live. That was something that came out strongly in the Youth Voice Census that Youth Employment UK do. Um, so it's it's really, really important that there's not just this emphasis on getting young people into jobs, but also getting them into good quality jobs. Um, and, and, and therefore, I think that, you know, this, this rhetoric in government around needing to you know, just get everyone into work and, and there's a focus on older age groups and things like that. It's all important, but young people just aren't part of that narrative and they need to be. And especially as we've talked about marginalised young people, those who face the most barriers and potentially those who will, are most likely to get disengaged from the labour market, they're the ones that really need to be put as a policy focus. 
So I just think overall, there's a lot to look at in the landscape and it's incredibly vast and there's so much noise. But the system currently isn't working for young people and particularly not those from marginalised backgrounds. So it's really important as an organisation that we're lobbying for them, even if it's not always happening at the heart of government amidst everything else that's going on. Thank you, Angel. And you touched upon there some really interesting um, and important issues that, um, you know, in previous collaborations on reports, we've uncovered um a disparity between young people's views versus, you know, the narrative of which they're portrayed, which you touched upon there. And in your role, you collaborate with a range of organisations, right, um, including the Youth Employment Group. And now I imagine some of our listeners uh, might not know what that is. Um, can you give us a bit of a background on what the YEG is? Yeah, of course. So the Youth Employment Group, anyone who doesn't know, um, and it is affectionately known as the YEG, is the UK's largest youth employment coalition. And it was set up in 2020 in response to the threat of a youth employment crisis during the pandemic. Um, the EGG is made up of over 300 members and comes together monthly to bring youth employment experts together to share research and basically to influence policy and practice. Um, and we're really excited at Youth Futures because we've been able to play a founding role in that group. We're a founding co-chair of the EGG alongside the Prince's Trust, the Institute for Employment Studies, Youth Employment UK, Impetus and Learning and Work Institute. Um, and we're really just, it's a space to be able to mobilise a sector, to act as a, as a, you know, as a forum for collaboration between the various research projects, campaigns and activity in the youth employment sector. Um, and just to give a little bit of um, context, last July, we published a paper on levelling up for young people as part of the EGG. And, and it was basically lobbying for an opportunity guarantee. So a guaranteed education, training place or employment opportunity um, for young people. And we lobbied the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson and managed to get 89 signatories from across the YEG to call for this opportunity guarantee. And we continue to work on collective action and putting our heads together on what meaningful calls we can make as we approach a general election in the next two years. The YEG has several offshoots um, that focus in on particular issues. Now, we recognise that the youth employment landscape is incredibly vast and very complex. So in partnership with the Westminster Foundation and supported by Impetus, we created seven subgroups focusing on areas such as quality of work, self-employment, disability, etc. Just to make sure that we're really thinking about the complex barriers that young people um, face in those particular areas. And it's worth saying that Youth Futures Foundation is proud to be a founding co-chair of the Ethnic Disparity Subgroup, um, which was set up in July 2021 with the Joseph Browntree Foundation, but is now jointly co-chaired with the Council for Somali Organisations. Um, and since then, we've commissioned three strands of ethnic disparities research on behalf of the subgroup, um, which, which looks at the experiences of young people um, who are from ethnic minority backgrounds, the, their navigation into work. And we've uncovered some really scary stats recently, actually, about discrimination and about the fact that two in five young people from ethnic minority backgrounds out of a sample of 2,700 said that their mental health had suffered due to the cost of living crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're super excited as part of the subgroup also to be launching the findings at an event in the House of Lords in November, which were, is going to be hosted by Lord Simon Woolley. He's a non-executive director on Youth Features Foundation's board as well. So lots of exciting stuff with the EGG. And I think the final thing that I would just comment on, which I think is really important, and it's the heart of everything that Youth Futures does and that the EGG does, is young people are very much, um, their voice is something we really want to surface and hear. So we've got a Youth Voice Forum as well, which is basically the youth participation strand of the EGG, which is run by young people for young people. And I'm lucky enough to be one of the co-chairs of the YVF alongside the Prince's Trust and the IAS and Youth Employment UK. 
And so we meet basically every month with young people to discuss topical issues and hear their perspectives. And then we feed that back to civil servants um, and also YEG members at the Youth Employment Group monthly meetings. So it's a really, really diverse coalition. And I'd encourage people who haven't um, heard of it or don't know of it to check it out because it's open to everyone. And we just really want to bring people together as much as possible. We've really set the scene there in terms of Youth Futures Foundation's history, its development, uh, some of the issues it's uh, tackling. And we've we've touched upon some real, you know, barriers and issues there that young people are grappling with, including the mental health emergency affecting young people, discrimination and the importance of youth voice within that and how important it is to kind of make sure that it's embedded. So I'd love to open this discussion uh, a bit more widely now to get, you know, reflections on some of Angel's points and some of the things that you've heard there in terms of Youth Futures history and reflections on some of the challenges that we're attempting to tackle. So George and Matthew, what do you think about what Angel said there about the current policy landscape? Does any of that resonate with you? Thanks, Rena. Yeah, so uh, it does. And at times it, it paints a slightly scary picture of not only the challenges that we can see now but also the challenges that we expect to see in the future and we we live in uncertain times and uncertain economic conditions and um issues like the rising cost of living um are all issues that are going to affect young people i guess a reflection when angel was talking was actually about how well equipped are we to tackle some of these issues what are the skills and um, experiences and knowledge and learning that we have in our professional tool belt that enables us to kind of maximize the impact of um, activities and funding for young people. How do we know what is effective in tackling youth unemployment? Um, what, how do we know what works in order that during you know times of crisis we're able to respond quickly and at pace and in collaboration with others by saying this is the thing that we should do and why. Um, and we launched our evidence and gap map, which kind of set out our stall um, in terms of understanding kind of what are the interventions that are proven to work or not work. And an important part of our role moving forward is supplementing that knowledge base, but also making sure that people that are working with young people on the front line day in, day out, have the right tools to enable them to support the young people in the way that is most effective and maximises every pound that's invested in supporting them. Thank you, Matthew. George, um, you talked a little bit earlier about your uh, journey on an apprenticeship. And um, you know, as you know, we were set up in 2019, but since then, a huge amount has happened in society. And it's impossible to have a conversation, I think, about our history without referencing the pandemic. And you referenced that as well earlier. So what, what do you think about the impacts of COVID on young people's prospects? Um, I think, it, um, and just quickly on the, the points that uh, Angel and Matthew uh, made, I think the piece around the, the, the lack of skills for the current jobs, I think that is going to be a key one. A lot of the work that I do is particularly around growth sectors. And I think if you were to ask the young person, for example, a, a career in cybersecurity, I think there'd be a handful that would know around that, but there'd be a lot that wouldn't. And I think that's probably going to be one of the, 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 the growing sectors and careers that I think is very suited to, to a young person. So I think actually that sort of knowledge and um, advice, so that IAG being filtered down, so it isn't just at the 
the end of sort of school 16 afterwards actually it's from the age of 11 you're finding out about these career pathways and what skills and attributes you need to go into them so then it really nails down that engagement within that sort of academic piece say for example in school i think that the the piece on the the change and the impact of the pandemic um i certainly do feel it has but i feel like it's created a lot more opportunity at the same time um, and I'm, I'm I'm very keen to make sure that that's opened up for particularly marginalised uh, young people. And I think the when you look at the the landscape and how, for example, employers worked prior to the pandemic and how young people have been brought up with, say, for example, digital device. Like myself, I've always known how to use sort of uh, digital devices and applications, etc. I think that is a a real benefit for for young people because I think that is going to be the the way of work now. Um, so I think that's certainly within their favour. I think the, the the key piece for me as well is the the, the political landscape. And I think over the, the sort of since 2019, that's been very sort of turmoil as well. So I think actually when we look at the, the levelling up agenda and I see, for example, that the focus on employment and skills um, that's coming out of the prosperity funding, that's not going to be launched until sort of 2025. And I know how key, for example, the ESF funding uh instrument has been to sort of charities and employment practitioners across the UK and um, so I think that could be a, a challenge where there's that potential gap in, in services uh, being delivered but I think that's the, the, the work that Youth Futures uh, are really supporting with is actually the services that can be overlooked by mainstream funding and I, I think I found that through my own sort of career particularly working in a college is actually that the, the marginalised young people that do need extra support and just maybe something that's more tailored the mainstream funding doesn't allow that. And I think that there's already severe cuts uh, across, for example, further education. So I think actually being able to provide that source of funding to projects that are maybe more innovative than your sort of historic and your, um, how traditional education has been. Uh, I think that is where I'm really keen on uh, Youth Futures do, mu uh, do more, um, like continue to do of what they've done already. Um, because I think, yeah, there's only so much the mainstream funding can do. And I think sometimes that's, for example, myself, I felt I was overlooked um, through mainstream funding. And it was only through sort of alternative funding. And then I got onto my own personal route to employment. Yeah, I think I'd just add there. I think I completely echo the points. I think George's point about um, Youth Future's role to make sure that those who are marginalised or those organisations that wouldn't get a look in or are overlooked are you know supported and given the funding that they need is super super important i think as well i just echo that there's been so much mislearning due to the lockdown so many missed opportunities i think george is right there is an opportunity with hybrid working and it's been one of the unlikely benefits to be honest of the pandemic it's given greater accessibility to young people with disabilities and things like that but having said that there there is still a lot of i guess negatives when it comes to the impact of the pandemic in terms of yeah in terms of those face-to-face -face opportunities there's opportunities for young people to you know get that training that they would have with employers to get their foot in the door um there's there's so many issues there that i think need addressing even things like physical resources do young people have access to devices things like that that can you know hinder them when it comes to their digital development um and i think one of the things that we heard very very strongly through the partnership that we run with youth employment uk and the dfe neat team um is that young people told us that the COVID-19 pandemic had a massive impact on their mental health and also their perceptions of which jobs and industries are stable or things like that. Um, and so it's, I think there is definitely a knock-on effect of what young people now consider 
that is a kind of a stable employment venture or things like that. Um, there's perceptions and healing that needs to be done in order to make sure that they feel supported to, to do what they want to do and when they want to do it. Um, so there are a lot of positives, but I think as well, it's, it's it's a role that we'll need to play to sort of facilitate how we can help that healing journey and make sure those who have been negatively impacted by the pandemic have that support. And especially those from more marginalised backgrounds who will face multiple barriers to get where they need to be. Yeah, I guess I couldn't talk about kind of COVID response without talking about our partnership with BBC Children in Need called Inspiring Futures, which is supporting 85 grantees across England. And it was, it was launched during COVID to support young people and um, to make sure that they were still being able to progress um, towards work and, and into jobs during that kind of really challenging time. Um, and actually, the programme's delivered really well. So we've seen really good progress of some of the young people that have been on programme towards work. And a bit of a teaser, we're going to be launching some of the findings of Inspiring Futures um, later on this year because we commissioned an overarching evaluation of the programme, kind of adding to that evidence base and learning around some of what has been effective practice during delivery to young people, like what has worked and what hasn't. And included in that is some learning about that digital divide, but also learning about how do you engage with young people virtually and how do you exit from relationships with young people when it's all been done online? So some really good and useful kind of practice guidelines that hopefully we'll be getting later on this year. I'd love to bring your reflections, um, all of you, around um, a statistic that we have referenced a lot in our work. So currently one in eight young people remain neat. So that's not in education, employment or training. What do you think about that statistic? One in eight young people is far, far, far too high. And it's remained that high for decades. Um, and I think there's sometimes in government and, and just generally there can be a sort of complacency that comes with when you see a statistic and it's been there for a long time and it's long standing, it's historic to just sort of ignore it or to to not know what to do to tackle the issue. So just because it's a, a long standing problem doesn't mean it's not something that should be tackled and addressed. And through our conversations with young people, we've heard about the, the detrimental mental health effects of the stigma behind being not in education, employment or training. We've heard about the fact that it, it, you know, the more people get disengaged with the system, the harder it is to then re-engage them. And then it can become, a, you know, that that person's life chances are drastically reduced um, and, and they don't get that support that they need. So, you know, that there are services out there to support young people. Um, but they don't necessarily get to access them or they're fragmented or disjointed. Um, and, you know, we've seen this a lot with, for example, Youth Hubs. We love Youth Hubs. We think they're such a brilliant resource when done correctly. They're co-located services that can help young people to access jobs. We've got youth youth coaches that the DWP hire to support young people. But the problem is, is that it's often a postcode lottery with these things. Um, and, and also they, they often require referrals. So what happens when a young person is disengaged from the system entirely and doesn't engage with them, those employability services? That's where we see the real the real barrier here and it's really difficult to engage those young people. So I think what we're really keen at eFutures to do is also work on neat prevention to make sure that young people don't end up in a situation where they're completely disengaged from education, employment, training, and just have no sort of bearing on being able to get their life back on track. Um, because it's not that people don't want support, it's just often that they don't know where to find it or that it's not in a you know a single place or a one-stop shop that they can look for to be able to get that, that information and guidance. 
Yeah, I think just to uh, echo uh, Angel's points, um, I think the uh, statistic when you look at it, say, for example, on a, a, say an average school basis, when you look at, say, a year group would have 10 classes of 30 young people, that's nearly a whole class of young people that are classed as neat. So that's 30 people within one room that will, after sort of that year 11 period, that they're, they're going into that neat pathway and that's sort of almost based on these statistics guaranteed. And I just think that's just so not acceptable. So that's why, as well, I'm very passionate about the work I do. Having been at a NEAT for a brief spell and then managing to get myself out of that um, situation was very much not from the employability services as well. So I think that that join up from when you do leave school and ensuring that there isn't that sort of, there's all this momentum getting you through your GCSEs and getting you to the end of year 11. And it's like the momentum drops off. So I think that real connection with school and not just colleges, but when you look at, for example, the apprenticeship market, 70% of apprenticeships are delivered by independent training providers. When I was in school, I wouldn't have a clue what an independent training provider is. And I think that whole in that whole industry talking with schools is going to be key over the, the, the foreseeable future. And I feel like this, the Gatsby benchmark and the announcements and some of the amendments to that this year will hopefully push that along and really embed careers education within schooling, but really on that local level as well. Because I think that's one of the things I realised is I think when it was, yeah, enterprise days back when I was at school, you're getting some of the biggest employers you can think across the UK come talk to you about all these fantastic jobs and you go, where can I apply? And actually it's not rant, it's not near, it's not possible for you to apply. So actually that connection with localised employers I think is key because when you look at our economy, most of the economy is made up by small businesses and I think that engagement and support and advice for small businesses engaging with the neat population is key, and I think that you can see that through some of the grantees uh, that um, YFF support. Just building upon the points already made, I think a statistic that says one in eight young people will become neat is just really sad, and it's sad for a couple of reasons. Primarily because for that young person, it can mean a period of instability and uncertainty, not knowing what is going to happen next and how they're going to access support to to move them beyond being stuck. But equally thinking about the scarring effects longer term, like the longer that somebody stays outside of education, employment and training, the worse the outcomes become for that young person. So being able to think about how do you prevent young people from becoming knee and getting caught in a system, I think is equally important. And actually, there's, there's a job to be done that means that actually those young people aren't just seen as, um, you know, wonky economic units that have gone wrong and they're going to be a cost to to the the treasury and to government but actually those are young people and that's their life chances and we want to make sure that we are there to support them and uh funding frontline organizations but also providing them with that learning about what's effective thank you matthew um yeah so we've raised some really important points there especially what george was saying there about you know some of the jargon around um, your options like independent training provider and what you're saying there Matthew about the long-term scarring effects of, of being neat. So I'd love to now move the conversation towards our approach to how we're sort of tackling some of those issues. So Matthew um, I wonder if we could start with you what what are the, some of the solutions that Youth Futures have identified in terms of our approach or strategy? So we've, we've learned a lot about um, the experiences of young people through the funding that we've distributed. And we plan to learn a lot more. Sometimes kind of building evaluations and evidence takes time. 
and we've been developing a pipeline of really promising interventions that we want to learn from and evaluate and build our evidence base. And actually, we're in the process excitedly of preparing for our first randomised control trial, which is super excited. But I better not give too many spoilers because we'll have to do a separate podcast on uh, learning about that in and of itself. Um, but in particular, we have identified, you know, some really important lessons and good practice. And the first one's going to sound a bit boring, but it's important. And that's about effective tracking and outreach. So we need to be able to ensure that we are understanding who we are supporting and who we are reaching, that we are making sure that the right young people are being supported onto the programs and initiatives that they're designed to support. And actually the use of um, magnets, so things that might attract young people to take up support is in place and is effective so that we're getting um, access and um, we're accessible to, to young people. So that, I guess, a, a key bit of learning about who are you engaging with and how are you reaching them is, is quite important. And um, the second one is something that um, a grantee recently described to me as ordinary magic. And I quite like that term. And it's about somebody caring for the young people that have been supportive and the effectiveness of advisors in supporting young people um, towards and into work. And a lot about the kind of consistency of the support that is provided to young people, either via a mentor or a jobs coach, um, but helping young people to set goals, maintain momentum, and also overcoming setbacks, because we recognise that like journeys to work aren't always linear. They're not always a straight line. Actually, crises happen in people's lives. And actually, having somebody available to support a young person at multiple points um, is really important. So that whole idea about um, somebody caring for a young person, the provision of support, and it being delivered consistently is an important piece of learning that we've, we've identified. Um, the third one um, that I think is important is around kind of that personalised packages of provision. So kind of recognising that all young people are unique and different. And actually, in order to increase um, their capability and to break down barriers, young people might need a unique offer of support, whether or not that's kind of support with job seeking, the provision of technical skills, or even kind of practical life skills, like having available support to young people that's unique and personalised is really important. So I guess those will be my top three. And then just a couple of others that we've been doing some research on more recently. So we've been doing quite a lot of work in and around the employer space. Um, and we've been looking at what is effective approaches for employers in reaching and recruiting young people that have come from marginalised backgrounds. Um, and we've also been doing some funding around intermediary labour markets with our funding up in Durham to Durham County Council. So we're excited to learn actually about what the effective practice looks like there. And we've also been doing some work with employers around retention. So in-work support, how do you enable young people to stay in work once they've found a job and hopefully move on and progress um, through it? So we've been funding some research and sharing that with um, with employers about actually how do you support not only young people to access employment opportunities, but once they've accessed it, how do you get them to stay? So that's that's all super exciting too. And then finally, the only thing that I was going to touch on is that we've recently launched our Connected Futures program, 
which is funding in seven places. And these seven places are uniquely different. We're funding in coastal communities, we're funding in urban areas, we're funding in areas of high poverty, but we're also looking to support some specific groups of young people. So young people who have a, a learning disability or are from particular ethnic minority groups or have experience of care. Um, and what we hope is by taking a place-based lens is that we can start to look at the experiences of young people within those places and look at the journeys that they take. And we think there's going to be some really rich learning about how do you create effective journeys to work for young people. Thank you, Matthew. And some of the points that you've raised there, especially around um, funding and our Connected Futures programme, uh, will be definitely be something that we'll cover in upcoming episodes for any listeners that are very eager to learn about our funding work. Um, so, George, in your capacity as a board member, what are you most looking forward to in your role in terms of um, what you think you can bring and, you know, and in, in especially in reflection of what uh, Matthew's just said there in terms of solutions? I hope, uh, Rena, um, that's where I can actually add the most value. I think when uh, I was going through the the, the sort of process uh, of interview for, for Youth Futures Foundation, I think that was one of the key areas I highlighted through that process is I feel that particularly sort of my lived experience and then seven years working with sort of large and small businesses on engaging young people and how to retain them as well. I think that's one of the key points um, that Matthew's just highlighted there. It isn't just about getting the role, it's about once you're in the role, what's that progression? And that's one of the things that I'm very passionate about is you're not just being offered one job, you're being offered a whole career. Uh, and that's where I really want to move the mindsets to the employers, because at the end of the day, employers need to run as a business. So they need to have them benefits as a business. And as we uh, know at the moment, there is a lot more obviously jobs than people that are actually going forward for them. So that whole retention uh, and that sort of war on talent is key for employers. And I think actually marginalised young people is a complete untapped talent pool um, that, that really needs to be accessed. And I hope sort of my lived experience and sort of the, the connections and the actual the, the board members and all the staff at YFF and all the connections and collaborations that are already happening, but also the ones that could just widen that impact a, a little further and, and really scaled the innovative projects that we are funding. Um, so I think Matthew mentioned it uh, around the infrastructure uh, project. So particularly the, the one for LPC in London is really helping guide support small businesses on actually how to, to recruit young people through apprenticeships. And it's those sort of niche, unique um, intermediary sort of not the traditional way of sort of the, the system working is what I feel is going to be key on being scaled uh, and having a real focus on actually measuring the impacts through uh, initiatives and, and projects that we fund such as that. Um, I think, yeah, necessarily still being fairly young myself. So uh, being 24, I think I can also bring that, that, that perspective. Um, and I feel that sometimes, particularly with employers, I can bring sort of a, a different perspective, having, as mentioned, sort of been through the experience as a young person, but also know the pain points for the employers um, and some of the stuff that they need that support and guidance on um, is, is what I hope I can do. Um, and then really just that cross-sector collaboration. I think, as I mentioned with Youth Futures, it's that sort of neutral ground as well. Um, so that it's really sort of bringing out any competition and bringing people around the table to talk about the the outcome that we're all here to, to support, which is help marginalised young people into good quality employment. 
Thank you, George. It's some really important reflections there and sounds really exciting as well. I feel like changing the mindset of the employment landscape is a really important uh, piece of work to do. Um, so, Angel, in your work in kind of like the policy um, sort of sphere, you mentioned earlier uh, about your interest in kind of the ethnic disparities gap and kind of trying to uh, narrow that and your work on it. What are we, for listeners that also are interested in that, what are we doing at Youth Futures um, to tackle the ethnic disparities gap? Yeah, it's a really important area and it's something that we're very, very passionate about, especially given the fact that we were established in response to the race disparity audit in 2017. Um, so we're doing this a number of ways, which have been touched on a little bit, but I'd just like to expand a bit further. So we're, as Matthew said, we're funding frontline organisations, working with young people from ethnic minority backgrounds and in particular groups as well to sort of examine what the challenges are that they're facing and to try and support them both locally and nationally to support to improve their employment outcomes. And we're also investing in ethnic minority led organisations who are really, really passionate about changing what the, the workforce looks like. Um, from previous roles in other organisations, we've seen that, you know, it, it, it's at the top of companies. It's often it doesn't look diverse um, and that needs to change. And I'm very passionate about that from a personal lens as well. Um, and then as well as that, we're not just investing in frontline organisations, we're also trying to evaluate what we do. We're trying to put research out to really understand what works and what the landscape is like. So through our research with the YEGS ethnic disparity subgroup, we're acting as a convener for experts in the space to come together. Um, and we're also trying to build up this foundational basis of what the policy landscape looks like at the moment. So we did a rapid evidence assessment on this, looking at very different key areas. So housing, immigration, education, employment, and trying to put a picture together of what, what the landscape looks like for ethnic minority young people and also ethnic minority groups in general, because it is obviously a, a problem that affects um, wider than young people. But we think um, focusing on young people is really, really important. And we're really hoping to sort of scope out this research and make it become longitudinal. Um, we, we don't want it to sort of be, we do it this year and then that's it. We're keen to continue to develop our evidence base and to identify what works to really, really help young people from those marginalised groups. And we're excited as well because our brilliant research team are doing some really cool new research on marginalisation and overlaps in data with NatSEN. And we're also hoping to launch a data dashboard towards the end of this year. I won't spoil too much, um, but it will include ethnic disparities work as well as other markers um, of marginalisation for young people as well. Um, and that'll be a live platform that we can grow and get a deeper understanding of the labour market from. So we've got lots in the pipeline, but also lots of stuff to look forward to. And we're continuing to sort of really dissect and aggregate what we can do in these areas to to hone in on the specific barriers that young people face from ethnic minority background, but also to kind of do that bigger picture piece, which is really important, especially, you know, as we've, there's there's so much rhetoric out there um, around racism and systemic racism and all this kind of thing. And we're really keen to make sure that this is put on the agenda and that racism, discrimination, ethnic disparities, um, that young people from ethnic minority backgrounds are really given those same opportunities to thrive. And especially because there's such intersections as well that exist. Um, you know, so you might be a young person from an ethnic minority group who also has comes from a low income background or is a care leaver, and that might affect your journey to work as well. So there's so many different um, layers to dissect there. And we're just keen to make sure that we're working with organisations 
and at Youth Futures in terms of building an evidence base to really champion this cause and to make sure that attention is being drawn to it. And we're also really keen to make sure that we're working with civil servants and policymakers as well to make sure it gets attention because it's, it is a really important issue. Thanks to my guests for joining me for a conversation on Youth Future's journey so far. If you're interested in learning more about our work, our history and our mission, visit our website where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter and keep up to date on our activities. See you next time when I'll be chatting all things research. Bye.